You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Tristan, Julie, and the entire worship team. So grateful for you and everyone else who has participated in the service. And when we talk about participatory worship at being a core value at Grace Community Church, that means that everybody is involved in responding to the word and in interacting with all that is going on. So it's not just the people who are leading, but everyone. Well, welcome to Grace Community Church. If you are new here, my name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder at Grace, and we are delighted that you have come to worship with us this morning. Uh, just a couple of things I want to mention before we get into it. Prayer requests went out last night. Amanda <clears throat> Maldoni, probably not a lot of you know the Maldonis, but Amanda and her husband Steve attend, and her father in Florida was not expected to make it through the night, but he has made it through the night. But you want to pray for them. Uh, and also, um, uh, Bethany Wagler has had some really tough days. I failed to mention that in the first service um, and very likely has pancreatitis. It was back and forth as to whether she had it, but had emergency surgery yesterday. And she's doing better, but we just want to pray for the Wagglers as well. Well, um, a couple of things to talk about going forward this afternoon or this morning at the end of this service, if you've just been hearing about home group fair, let me encourage you to at the very least talk to some of the people who are home group leaders. You, you can't really know what Grace Community Church is all about and, until you're involved in a home group. And it's a slow start for a lot of us. I get that, um, especially if you're kind of quiet and you don't want to speak up. Look, nobody's going to make you speak up. And if, they, if the leader says, tell us about yourself, say, Pastor Brad said I didn't have to do that, okay? <laughs> Just say that, and it'll be fine. They'll say, okay, yeah, now I remember, yes. Um, but it's a place where you can just be quiet, come and be quiet. It's okay. Uh, but you will get, gain so much from it. And whenever someone is sick, the home group is just all over it. Everyone is involved. And we just share life together in those. So really, Sunday mornings are only about half of what happens at Grace. Now, there's a lot more than, than, than home groups in Sunday morning that's going on here, but that's the starting place. So let me encourage you to at least talk to some people. And then two weeks from today, we're going to have an outdoor service, October 3 at 10 a.m. We plan this two or three times a year where we can get the whole body together at once. Um, it's, we can't all get in here at one time, really. You know, we, we're, we're a lot of us in here this morning under uh, the circumstances. So I, I want to say this, though. If you were here last Sunday morning and heard the message, I just want to thank you for coming back this morning, you know. I'm really grateful for that, and I feel compelled to say this one thing. If you felt like the sermon was directed at you, please understand, it absolutely was. And it was directed at me. Look, the guy in the mirror is the one that I have the most trouble with. I can assure you, we need 
to hear a passionate call for unity, no matter what our leanings are politically, socially. It, we have to love one another. So I, I wanted to share these thoughts, that the thoughts that I shared last week, really for almost a year, but the text kept directing me away from making the strong case, the particular case for unity that was made last week. So think about that for just a moment. I, I wanted to say it, but the text didn't really allow it. Why allow Scripture to get in the way of a good point that needs to be made, right? You hear some people say, never let a crisis go to waste. Well, why let Scripture get in the way of a point that you want to make? Let's think about the interpretation of Scripture for just a moment. Most of the sermons that you will hear at Grace Community Church are expository sermons, which simply means that the pastor, the elder, whoever is preaching will seek to explain the meaning of that particular text. Usually it's a unit. These psalms work nicely because it's, that's a unit of Scripture, a paragraph often in the New Testament. Ricky Lee is going to start Titus next week. He's going to be preaching from the first four verses. It's a unit of thought. So expository preachers will take that unit of thought in Scripture and try to explain its meaning and then bring application to our personal lives and also application for the community life. The Bible was written to God's people to reveal himself to us to tell us how to relate to him and to instruct us how we are to live as God's children with one another and in a world that cares little for a personal relationship with Jesus. I thought about this a lot. Didn't write it in my notes. Didn't say it in the first service. But people talk about the Bible is God's love letter to humanity. Is that true? Yes, it is true. But more precisely... This is God's love letter to his people. If you don't know the Lord, if Jesus is not your Savior, if you've just been trying to be good enough to be saved, then most likely this is a pretty complicated book to you. And it will be complicated at some level for all of our lives. But if you don't know Christ, it doesn't make much sense at all. And what sense you make of it could be wrong. So it's God's love letter to his children. And that's why we take great care when we're preaching a passage to accurately deliver, to accurately deliver expository messages. The preacher needs to do the careful work of exegesis. I'm going to explain that a little bit in more detail in just a moment. And that includes identifying the author of the book from which he is preaching, the recipients of the book or the letter to, to whom it is written, the culture and circumstances of the day, and the grammar and vocabulary of the original languages, and that's just for starters. Fortunately, many commentaries make like-ter-ish work. So, exegesis is extracting from the text. In other words, the Bible is guiding the sermon, not the other way around. Eisegesis is reading my experiences, my biases, my personality, along with a lot of other mys into 
the text. The problem with eisegesis and oh, I've been just as guilty as all of us. We've all been guilty of this at times. Is that I can make the Bible say what I want it to say. Or I can make it say what others with whom I agree, socially, philosophically, politically, etc. What they believe, well, that's okay. I, I think I can find that in Scripture. So I know, I, surely you understand the danger of me as the past teaching elder making my thoughts the starting point for interpreting Scripture. So one last time. Exegesis extracting from the text, eisegesis reading into the text, and then, as my seminary professor, who was a funny man, used to say, some people find that extra Jesus in the Bible. So, just one last reminder from Psalm 146. Brothers and sisters, let us not forget Our business is with the gospel, and our hope is in Jesus. Now, let me say this. I I probably wasn't clear about this last week. I absolutely want you to understand that that does not mean we should not be involved in politics or matters of justice in the land. Not at all. Absolutely. We have the great privilege of living in a land where our voice determines the direction of our country, of our nation. And we should be involved in helping direct the nation in the right way. Uh, it, it, It would be wrong to say it's not our responsibility to do that. We really do have a responsibility to effect change wherever we can. It's the how that is the tough part. Make sure that when you post something online or if you're at a rally or at a town council meeting that the sweet fragrance of Jesus flows from your heart and in your speech. That's a challenge in the best of times. These are not the best of times. It's really difficult to do that Well, even though we live in a land that for the time allows political dissent, ostensibly, the church must have as its primary focus kingdom work, which is often in the opposite direction of the world. And it's easy when we want to just sort of... It's like we're swimming upstream and the whole world is going this way. And when we turn around and say, well, let's come along. Let me come alongside of you. It gets really complicated because ultimately we're going this way and the world's going that way. When we lose our moorings, it is easy to detach from the central work that centers around the gospel. The world should witness believers loving each other and providing beautiful healing community for all who will believe the gospel message that Jesus was sent from heaven to do something about our sins that separated us from God. The church is unlike anything else. It must, we must keep our distinction. And we exist because Jesus, sent by the Father, lived a perfect life 
obeying the law in every point to do something about our sin. Pretty soon we're going to be singing Christmas carols or Advent hymns, which are so often theologically rich. By the way, if you want to know, I know it's a big question. In fact, it divides a lot of families. When should you start listening to Christmas music? I have a suggestion. The day that the state fair pulls out of town, which is, you know, somewhere in late October, that's the day that you can start listening to, don't, not on the Sunday when state fair is still in town, but the next day, then you can go. When we begin to sing, Hark the Herald, Angel Scene, we're going to hear Jesus reference this second Adam from above. Hark the Herald, Angel Scene may be one of the best theologically driven hymns that we sing. I wish we sang it all year long. Second Adam from above. Adam came, sinned. We lost relationship with God. Jesus came. Second Adam never sinned. Therefore, God said, you are an acceptable offering. And when Jesus died on the cross, he did so, spotless lamb of God, that our sins might be forgiven. Those who acknowledge that they are indeed the kind of sinners that God says they are. And they believe that Jesus paid the debt they owed to God because of their sin. Are made children of God. And we're placed into this community that is unlike anything else. Today's message from Psalm 141 is the last Sunday in our series, Another Summer in the Psalms, although David Calvert will preach from the Psalms in November, making up an assignment he missed in the summer because of COVID protocols. Imagine that. It's meaningful to me to end with Psalm 141 because reading this Psalm two to three years ago inspired me to spend more time in the Psalms. And that has been an, just a, a, an utterly unanticipated blessing for me. Now, I, I know I've said this before. and I'm, Look, this is not pointing to me. It's just, it's just an idea of, of how you might do it. What I do, and what I read through the Psalms, and I just do this on a cycle. I've been doing it for a while now, and it's been really blessed. If I'm on this page, I start with Psalm 143. And I go until the end of this Psalm. You know, and I'll pick it up right there the next day. But I, I try to do this every day. I don't do it every day, but I do it a lot of days. And that has helped to shape my life in some really ex encouraging and significant ways. And when I'm struggling, when I have sinned, there's Psalm 32, there's Psalm 51 to remind me God forgives. He calls us to repentance. And he beautifully forgives. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. He does not, he does not blame, assign it to me even though I committed it. Why? Because of Jesus. They wouldn't, they wouldn't know that when the Psalms were written. But God knew it. And this great benefit to all of us to be in the Psalms. Psalm 141 is a deeply personal prayer from David's heart. He's seeking divine help for spiritual disciplines and also for deliverance from his enemies. This psalm is a perfect companion to last week's call 
to love our brothers and sisters in times in which not only is the world divided, but the strain on the unity within the church is also intense. Did I plan this all out? No, I will admit, a lot of times we're going through books of the Bible and the structure is very clear. and We get to see how it all works together. Most of the Psalms that I've preached this year have been Psalms that just really jumped out at me at times. And Psalm 141, this is the one, like I say, that started me really getting into the Psalms. And so what makes this Psalm so fitting for our time is that it speaks, again, to every believer personally, but it's also a prayer for protection for the covenant community. And that would be the church. It's it's protection from increasingly hostile opposition to the gospel and to those who proclaim it. Which again, just state what you believe to the world, and they're not going to like it. So the psalm is a prayer for protection, and we'll see how it all works together. Psalm 141. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And by the way, that is a long introduction. Uh, If you've been paying attention, my introductions have been getting shorter, but this one did the accordion thing, you know, and went back out there, but because it's all part of the foundation for where we're heading. Psalm 141. Oh Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. They've got an agenda. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. That's a strange verse, isn't it? As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. Do you remember when many, if not most, evangelical churches held Sunday evening services? Uh, Look, it's still common in Australia, quite common in Australia, for churches to have Sunday evening services, although not in these days of intense lockdown. In more liturgically minded churches, Psalm 141 is read as a prayer as the prayer that it is at Vespers, which occurs in the early evening. Now, look, 
I'm not from a liturgical background, and so I had to look it up. When is Vespers? I, I read in one of the commentaries. It, this is a prayer offered at Vespers. It's in the early evening, and that seems appropriate since some of the por- a portion of this psalm has more than a hint of crisis. So just think about it. Early evening, just about the time that the national and world news plays on the networks. Mm, that is a good time to offer this prayer. Not only are the first two verses of Psalm 141 a reminder that God's children enjoy the unique privilege of crying out to their father at a moment's notice with the expectation of being heard. But we are reminded that prayers are essential to the rhythm of the believer's life. Prayers routinely offered morning, noon, evening, but but for for this text, prayers routinely offered in the evening make the prayer of desperation in a crisis more natural, if that makes sense. If you're regularly praying, then it doesn't seem so awkward to pray, oh Lord, help me. And you probably, you'll just say help me like you should. Don't be bargaining with God. If you'll do this, I'll do that. No. It's not that kind of contract. It's not that kind of relationship that we have with the Lord. You know how it is when people who People are in touch with you only when there's a crisis. As the commercials say, don't be that person, you know, who comes to God only in a crisis. So if you're going to pray on a regular basis at at different times of the day, it's going to have to be a discipline of yours, a spiritual discipline. What do you think about spiritual discipline, such as Bible reading and prayer and such? Look, some of you come from liturgical backgrounds where the routine portions of the church service just seem stuffy and impersonal. Others think that keeping a schedule of some sort is very legalistic. We like our relationship with Jesus to be fluid and personal. And the routine smacks of stale, impersonal ritual. But hear this. I'm sitting right here on the front row. Hear this. Without commitment to the basic practices of the Christian life, we are almost certain to be stunted in our spiritual growth. It's going to get stuck. And you never really stand still in the Christian life. You go in one way or the other. It, it may feel dry. It may feel like a desert. You know how to know that you're moving forward because you're doing the right things whether you feel like doing them or not. That's what spiritual disciplines are about. Verse 3 is the one that grabbed my attention initially two or three years ago. And it grabs my attention the most whenever I read Psalm 141. Now you probably didn't even notice it when I read it a while ago. Or perhaps you're like me and you were like, ouch. Scripture has a lot to say about the discipline of the tongue in our speech. 
in our speech. If you read uh, uh, one chapter a day in Proverbs through the month of August, then you'll recall verses like Proverbs 15.2, which says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. So let's do Proverbs again in October, right? 31 days. Yes? No? No? Okay. Well, some of you will. Jesus had much to say about our speech. And then James 3 tells us that when the tongue is out of control, it is set on fire of hell. This is really interesting. Jesus, do you know how many times that Jesus, that it's recorded that Jesus said, God loves you? Only one time, John 3, 16, and that may not have been Jesus speaking. More than likely, it was John. We don't know where Jesus quit speaking in John 3, and then the apostle John started writing. He spoke of hell, I think it's 11 times. And when he would speak of hell, he would give a very graphic analogy. In Jerusalem, there was a, a, a trash dump called Gehenna. And I, now, I used to go out to the trash dump in Fuquay, it was Fuquay Springs at the time, Fuquay Varina, sometimes the two metropolis areas merged and became Fuquay Varina. But it was Fuquay Springs, and we would go out to the, um, to the dump and practice shooting rats, you know, that's what we, we, we practiced our rifles out there. But it was always, and some of you are old enough to remember this, there was always a fire, it was smoldering, it was always burning, never went completely out, and it was an awful stench. There was a place in Jerusalem like that called Gehenna, and whenever Jesus would talk about hell, he'd say, that's what it's like, where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. And what would happen in Jerusalem when the Romans would conduct their mass executions through crucifixion. It was a very dangerous thing to go and claim the body of a criminal who had been crucified because now the authorities are looking at you. And so a lot of those bodies went unclaimed, which is why it is such a remarkable thing that Nicodemus and Joseph went and claimed the body of Jesus. But the, but the Romans would throw those dead bodies on there. So you can imagine this was not a pleasant place. There's only one other place in the New Testament where the word Gehenna is used. And it's in the book of James. And it says this, when the tongue is out of control, it is set on fire of hell. Scripture has a lot to say about the use of our tongues and our Speech. Why is it that we have so much trouble with the tongue? Jesus identified the source of our trouble when he said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, if I were writing this sermon to myself, I would have been tempted to title it, Keep Your Fat Mouth Shut, Brad. But we're really not commanded to keep silent. We're commanded to speak genuine and gracious words that come from the heart. Do you know what will shape your heart in a way that will improve your speech? 
spiritual disciplines. We're going to talk a lot more about spiritual disciplines in home groups this week. So it's really vital that you find a good group. After church, you can talk to the people and then plan to attend this week. Speaking of personal disciplines, King David asked the Lord to keep his heart from evil because he knew that if he entertained wrong thoughts, then wrong actions would surely follow Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now look, there's a lot in Hebrews that talks about the sin of sexual lust and, 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 and other sins of the flesh, but the primary sin of the book of Hebrews is moving away from the gospel. It's moving back toward Thinking the law is the way that you are to relate to God. And your best hope of getting to heaven is doing the very best that you can. That's, it's so ironic, isn't it? We think of the warning passages, five of them in Hebrews, as being, don't you go back to living that sinful life. What he was saying was to Jews who had decided to trust Christ and who were thinking about going back to the, to the synagogue in Judaism... Because Jews did not have to say Caesar is Lord. Everybody else did. Romans didn't want to mess with the Jews. But because of that, they were thinking about going back. And he's like, no, 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 that's the wrong direction. You go back. You start trusting yourself instead of Jesus for your eternal life. Your soul is in, in jeopardy. Your soul is in danger. You are in danger of losing your soul to walk away from Jesus. Do I believe in eternal security? Absolutely. I, how do I reconcile? I, I, I can't. I can't reconcile it. Writers of Scripture didn't try to. They were too brilliant to leave contradictions on the table. It just says this. Don't walk away from Jesus. Don't think your efforts at anything will put you in right standing with God. If you thought that praying and submitting to the Lord in verse 3 was difficult, what about verse 5? Let a righteous man strike me, not literally, but let someone hit me hard with truth that I don't necessarily want to hear. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. See, this is why I should have written the sermon for myself, because you don't need this like I do. I know that none of you feel this way, but I'm not really fond of other people rebuking me. It's hard to take correction, and a lot of times my reaction is not good. A lot of times I'll come back around, but it's not easy when people need to correct us. You, you know what has helped me? So much in this last two, three years, reading the Psalms and Proverbs, because you see this truth over and over in Proverbs. You're wise if you receive rebuke, and it, it, is, it is a genuine and, and, and kind and gracious friend who will be willing to tell you what you need to hear, as opposed to flatterers who really just care about themselves when they flatter you. Can, can I speak a word to those of you who are still at home, whether you're 11 years old or you're 17 years old? When your parents correct you, I know that everything you see everywhere, television, internet, everywhere, 
tells you to speak back to them. What do they know? Don't, please don't do that. Don't be angry or defensive when your parents correct you. I promise you it's a much easier lesson to learn now than it will be later. And, and, and know this, sooner or later, anyone who is going to be like Jesus must learn to receive rebuke or at the least helpful correction from brothers and sisters in Christ. And what you, the way that you respond to your parent is going to direct you down the road. So if you're a student, a college student away from home, when you, when you call home today and you talk to your mom, don't, when, and you're tempted to say, Mom, don't say it. Just don't say it. You can think it, but no, no. I'm just, you, really, we just need to say, okay, okay. And then she'll say, who are you and what have you done with my daughter? You know, but um, that's okay too. Psalm 141 verse 5 is a good prayer. At the very end of verse 5, and in verses 6 and 7, David's prayer takes a sharp Turn. The Hebrew is as difficult as the English, and I'm taking Hebrew scholars' word for that, you understand. But the point is that David expects God to vindicate his cause, and when he does, the people will be glad to hear David's words because the king will give God the glory due his name, and the people will be glad that righteousness is once again established on the throne of Israel, the, the nation known as God's chosen people or God's children or God's covenant family. In verse 8, David affirms his full and complete dependence on the Lord. We'll return to verse 8 in just a moment, but it's worth considering David's prayer in verses 9 and 10 where he asks the Lord to protect him from the trap that his opponents have laid for him. David asked God that they will bring it back on their very heads. You know, and you, we have a great example of that in the Old Testament. In the book of Esther, where Haman, uh, the wicked Haman, wanted to kill Mordecai and all the Jews. And God ended up hanging Haman on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Now, that happens a lot of times. In our, in our world and in our lives, in the Christian world. world. But is, is that the kind of thing that we should pray for? Should we, you know, if Ben Grumbach is really giving me a hard time, should I pray, Lord, let the curse of Haman be on? Is that, is that the prayer that I'm called to pray in the New Testament? No. There is, there is some precedent for how we should pray in the New Testament, but there's a big shift after the cross. In Acts 4, we're, we see that instead of prayer for deliverance of persecution and destruction of, his in, of their enemies, the apostles prayed that God would look on the opposition to the gospel. See, they understood that opposition to them was opposition to the gospel. And this is another one of those things. If you're unwilling to receive rebuke ever, when people come at you because of your message, you bow all up and you say, how dare you talk to me that way? And we're missing the point. The opposition toward the Christian message is, is, the op is an opposition to God. 
And the apostles didn't pray for God to rain down his wrath on them. No, we're, we're, it, it's explained to us in the New Testament that we are to allow God to take those actions. But what was their prayer? They prayed that the gospel message that Jesus, who alone is God and who alone can save, will continue to continue to spread according to the Father's sovereign plan. We're going to read Acts 4, 23 to 31, where Peter and John have just been warned by the council, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders in Israel. They'd been warned to not continue speaking in Jesus' name. And by the way, every single time Peter and John were dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, they knew that there was a possibility at the end of that session they would be dragged outside the city walls and stoned to death. They, they always recognized that as a possibility. So let's see what their response was. And in keeping with the theme of these last two weeks, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, Acts 4.23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priest and elders had said. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. So in other words, we know who we're dealing with. We've been before the most powerful ethnic council in the land. And they could make our lives miserable or end our lives. But we understand who we're dealing with here. Creator of heaven and earth, sea and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying... Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah from Psalm 2, 1 and 2. By the way, if you're just relatively new to church, the first two uh, sermons from this series were from Psalms 1 and 2. That was structure that was intentional because everything else in the Psalms kind of flows back to that. Well, in the New Testament, Peter and John have put this together. The apostles are understanding what's going on. Then in verse 27, in fact, they said, when they look back to Psalm 2, this has happened here in this very city. Prophecy fulfilled in front of our eyes. <coughs> For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, they were all united against Jesus, your holy servant whom you anointed. But everything they did was done because they just couldn't stand hearing us. In no. Everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and put them down. No, again, that's a misreading. Hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing powers. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place 
shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They, then they preached the word of God with boldness, and, and Acts tells us with great joy as well. I, I don't know about you, but I find myself really discouraged in these days where opposition to the gospel is growing. Why don't I have the joy? Why don't we have the joy that the early disciples had? had? Why is our focus so distracted? There are a lot of answers. And I imagine most of us are thinking about why others are so distracted. But when we're honest, we know we all are. Is there a cure? Well, it is. And it's back to the truth of Psalm 141.8. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Yahweh. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. <clears throat> Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me. But the, but the focus is my eyes are toward you. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, I have now made it possible for you to earn your salvation. He said, it is finished. And we are most like Jesus when we are forgiving our enemies, those who have done us great harm. When you pray, Make me like Jesus. You're praying, Lord, give me a cross. You're not saying, Lord, make life easy. We pray that a lot. And there's nothing wrong with praying for health and, and healing from illness. And praying that we get a new job or whatever. Th those, are not, those are not wrong prayers. But when we pray, make me like Jesus, we're praying Give me a cross. And that may not be exactly how you pray it, but that's how the Lord heard it. We're talking this week in, in home groups about Romans 8 and how the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and he translates them. And the Father says, yep, I'm with you, Spirit. I'll grant that request. So there's a lot more to that. You need to be in home group this week to understand it better. Because Jesus has done the work of redemption, he makes sanctification or spiritual growth not only possible, but likely when we look to him. So here's the, here's the deal. God saved me, now it's up to me. No, that's wrong. God saved me, and now it's up to him to mold me into the image of Jesus. But spiritual disciplines go a long way toward molding us into the image of Jesus. We don't pursue these disciplines so that we might be saved, but we pursue them because we are saved. And our heart's desire is to be more like Jesus. And if that involves persecution, well, just remember we did ask to be like Jesus. Let's make sure, though, if we're persecuted, we're persecuted for the right thing. For gospel truth. Last Sunday morning at the end of the message taken from Psalm 146, we read the first half of Ephesians 4 in the New Living Translation. This morning at the end of our time in Psalm 141, we're going to read the other half of Ephesians 4 
in the New Living Translation. The emphasis is on new life in Christ and the difference that he makes in our lives. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32 reminds us that we are called and equipped to make conscious decisions to live intentional lives that signify that the Holy Spirit is in control of our lives. And what's he doing? Making us like Jesus. This text is particularly appropriate because of the instruction at the end of the chapter for the ways that we are to use our words to glorify the Lord and to build up our fellow believers. So Ephesians 4, 17. With the Lord's authority, I say this. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he's saying this with authority. The only authority we have is to say this is what Scripture says. But Paul, as an apostle, is saying this comes directly from God. We can't say that. So if you come up to me and say, the Lord told me this and this about you, I'm going to be like, okay, well, maybe he'll tell me someday. I don't know. I haven't, you know, that's it. Gosh, I went to Bible college back in 1972. I started and the guys all the time were like, the Lord told me, sweetheart, that we're supposed to be married, you know, and she would say, well, he ain't told me yet. So, uh, um, But Paul speaks with that kind of authority. The authority that we have is from the word. Now, if I keep doing this, we're never getting out of here. So let me move on. Live no longer as the Gentiles do. They they, they were still Gentiles, but they were saved. And Gentiles could have cared less about God before Jesus came into their lives. And they knew what he was saying. He wasn't being racist. He was just saying... Don't live like you used to live, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity Brothers and sisters, what are, we, what are we watching? What are we reading? What are we listening to? That's not our life anymore. And somehow, a lot of things that didn't used to be okay for the church are okay now. I don't know how to help you process and discern that totally. But you got to know what's coming in is going to end up coming out. Don't live like that. That isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your sinful nature, old sinful nature, and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. He's not talking to the pagans of Ephesus. He's talking to the Christians in Ephesus who were saved. Stop telling lies. You know why? Because Christians tell lies. And we need to hear this. 
Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. What is it? What is it that really gets you angry? A lot of things tend to stir the emotions within me. Stop letting anger control you. Don't sin by that. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. If God blesses you financially, it's not so that you can build your kingdom. It's to bless others who are in need. And let me just say this, since the text allows me to say this. Not exactly like this, but it says it. it, it it's the idea. Pay off your house. We, we may find ourselves in a place of persecution where we are persecuted and we're going to need to have other grace members in our homes. Get it paid off. You, there are a lot of things you're doing that maybe you just need to be putting that extra because we are going to have to support one another generously. You don't think that Standing for your convictions will cost you in this day. People are struggling with that now. What are, you going, what are we going to do? Use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. And whatever you post, whatever you say, what is, look, our culture, it's a sign of, of, of where we are. The, the vulgarity, we're at a ball game. People are F the refs or F the other team. Everything has to be laced with profanity. And if it is in your post, your whatever, your, your, your interaction with other people, something's not right. That, that's not the way you are called to live Die to yourself in that language you're using. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful. This is Psalm 141.3. Put a watch and a guard so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. That's difficult because when you write an encouraging word on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, that doesn't get the replies. What gets the hits, boys, when you let somebody have it? And thank goodness, thank God somebody stood, finally stood up. Really? Is that where we are? That we justify everything? Do not bring sorrow to the people of God. No, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, 
He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Once again, He's talking to thieves and and people that use foul language and, and people who are lying and saying, quit doing that. Why? Because you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He guarantees that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Live up to your calling. Get rid of all bitterness, verse 31. Rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. That was one of my favorite verses. My, it was one of the ones that we taught our kids to memorize, and I can still hear them. Be kind one to another, loving one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. I remember my kids saying that. I loved it. You heard about the child that was quoting in front of the church scriptures and, and combined two scriptures that ought not have been combined. A lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in a time of danger <laughs> or a time of trouble. Yeah. So, but tell me how different is it when we take Scripture with that eisegesis and we mold it for our own purposes? Well, the Lord is so good to us. One of the most beautiful things I have seen in all my years as a Christian is when brothers and sisters get sideways with one another. And really, in most cases, it would have ended the relationship because it was nothing like family blood, you know, tie in that relationship where you have to do it. But they die to themselves. And they love each other. They just love each other. And there's nothing more attractive to that than that to this world. Let's pray. Our Father, someone said last week, boy, my shoes are scuffed. After that message, and I'm like, oh, yeah, my toes are crushed. I, you know, one of the most beautiful blessings of preaching the word is being in the text all week. And one of the greatest burdens of preaching the word is being in the text all week. Lord, you rebuke us in love just like the disciples who were rebuked often by Jesus loved him with everything in them. May we love you. May our hearts be open. May our words be gracious. And may our trust be in you. May the gospel and the love of Christ, so fill our hearts that we exude the fragrance 
of Jesus and knowing that it will be the savor of life to some and the savor of death to others. But Lord, to one another, it's just love and it's gratitude for being placed in a community that not only is called to but demonstrates love for one another. We acknowledge that our unity is fragile just like health is fragile. It's always been fragile. We just didn't know it or we just don't know it until a crisis comes. But Lord, you've made a way for us to routinely pray to you and to come in a crisis in a very natural way. We thank you that you hear us, that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us, and that we have the hope of eternal life because of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.